This is section 33 of The Gilded Age. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, by Mark Twain and C. D. Warner. Chapter 33. Laura soon discovered that there were three distinct aristocracies in Washington. One of these, nicknamed the Antiques, consisted of cultivated, high-bred old families who looked back with pride upon an ancestry that had been always great in the nation's councils and its wars from the birth of the Republic downward. Into this select circle it was difficult to gain admission. Number two was the aristocracy of the middle ground, of which more anon. Number three lay beyond, of it we will say a word here. We will call it the aristocracy of the parvenu, as indeed the general public did. Official position, no matter how obtained, entitled a man to a place in it, and carried his family with him no matter whence they sprang. Great wealth gave a man a still higher and nobler place in it than did official position. If this wealth had been acquired by conspicuous ingenuity, with just a pleasant little spice of illegality about it, all the better. This aristocracy was fast, and not averse to ostentation. The aristocracy of the antiques ignored the aristocracy of the parvenu, the parvenu laughed at the antiques, and secretly envied them. There were certain important society customs which one in Laura's position needed to understand. For instance, when a lady of any prominence comes to one of our cities and takes up her residence, all the ladies of her grade favor her in turn with an initial call, giving their cards to the servant at the door by way of introduction. They come singly sometimes, sometimes in couples, and always in elaborate full dress. They talk two minutes and a quarter, and then go. If the lady receiving the call desires a further acquaintance, she must return the visit within two weeks. To neglect it beyond that time means let the matter drop. But if she does return the visit within two weeks, it then becomes the other party's privilege to continue the acquaintance or drop it. She signifies her willingness to continue it by calling again any time within twelve months. After that, if the parties go on calling upon each other once a year in our large cities, that is sufficient, and the acquaintanceship holds good. The thing goes along smoothly now. The annual visits are made and returned with peaceful regularity and bland satisfaction, although it is not necessary that the two ladies shall actually see each other oftener than once every few years. Their cards preserve the intimacy and keep the acquaintanceship intact. For instance, Mrs. A. pays her annual visit, sits in her carriage, and sends in her card with the lower right-hand corner turned down, which signifies that she has called in person. Mrs. B. sends down a word that she is engaged or wishes to be excused, or if she is a parvenu and low-bred, she perhaps sends word that she is not at home. Very good. Mrs. A. drives on happy and content. If Mrs. A.'s daughter marries, or a child is born to the family, Mrs. B. calls, sends in her card with the upper left-hand corner turned down, and then goes along about her affairs, for that inverted corner means congratulations. If Mrs. B.'s husband falls downstairs and breaks his neck, Mrs. A. calls, leaves her card with the upper right-hand corner turned down, and then takes her departure. This corner means condolence. 
it is very necessary to get the corners right, else one may unintentionally condole with a friend on a wedding or congratulate her upon a funeral. If either lady is about to leave the city, she goes to the other's house and leaves her card with P.P.C. engraved under the name, which signifies Pay Parting Call. But enough of etiquette. Laura was early instructed in the mysteries of society life by a competent mentor, and thus was preserved from troublesome mistakes. The first fashionable call she received from a member of the ancient nobility, otherwise the antiques, was of a pattern with all she received from that limb of the aristocracy afterward. This call was paid by Mrs. Major General Fulk Fulkerson and daughter. They drove up at one in the afternoon in a rather antiquated vehicle with a faded coat of arms on the panels, an aged white-wooled negro coachman on the box, and a younger darkie beside him, the footman. Both of these servants were dressed in dull brown livery that had seen considerable service. The ladies entered the drawing-room in full character, that is to say, with Elizabethan stateliness on the part of the dowager, and an easy grace and dignity on the part of the young lady that had a nameless something about it that suggested conscious superiority. The dresses of both ladies were exceedingly rich, as to material, but as notably modest as to color and ornament. All parties having seated themselves, the dowager delivered herself of a remark that was not unusual in its form, and yet it came from her lips with the impressiveness of Scripture. "'The weather has been unpropitious of late, Miss Hawkins.' "'It has indeed,' said Laura. "'The climate seems to be variable.' "'It is its nature of old here,' said the daughter, stating it apparently as a fact only, and by her manner waving aside all personal responsibility on account of it. "'Is it not so, mamma? "'Quite so, my child. "'Do you like winter, Miss Hawkins?' She said like, as if she had an idea that its dictionary meaning was approve of. "'Not as well as summer, though I think all seasons have their charms.' "'It is a very just remark. The general held similar views. He considered snow in winter proper, sultriness in summer legitimate, frosts in the autumn the same, and rains in spring not objectionable. He was not an exacting man, and I call to mind now that he always admired thunder. You remember, child, your father always admired thunder? He adored it. No doubt it reminded him of battle, said Laura. Yes, I think perhaps it did. He had a great respect for nature. He often said there was something striking about the ocean. You remember his saying that, daughter? Yes, often, mother. I remember it very well. And hurricanes. He took a great interest in hurricanes and animals, dogs especially, hunting dogs, also comets. I think we all have our predilections. I think it is this that gives variety to our tastes. Laura coincided with this view. Do you find it hard and lonely to be so far from your home and friends, Miss Hawkins? I do find it depressing sometimes, but then there is so much about me here that is novel and interesting that my days are made up more of sunshine than shadow. Washington is not a dull city in the season, said the young lady. We have some very good society indeed, and one need not be at a loss for means to pass the time pleasantly. Are you fond of watering places, Miss Hawkins? I have really had no experience of them, 
but I have always felt a strong desire to see something of fashionable watering-place life. "'We of Washington are unfortunately situated in that respect,' said the dowager. "'It is a tedious distance to Newport, but there is no help for it.' Laura said to herself, "'Long Branch and Cape May are nearer than Newport. Doubtless these places are low. I'll feel my way a little and see.' Then she said aloud, "'Why, I thought that Long Branch—' There was no need to feel any further. There was that in both faces before her which made that truth apparent. The dowager said, "'Nobody goes there, Miss Hawkins, at least only persons of no position in society, and the President.' She added that with tranquillity. "'Newport is damp and cold and windy and excessively disagreeable,' said the daughter. "'But it is very select. One cannot be fastidious about minor matters when one has no choice.' The visit had spun out nearly three minutes now. Both ladies rose with grave dignity, conferred upon Laura a formal invitation to call, and then retired from the conference. Laura remained in the drawing-room and left them to pilot themselves out of the house, an inhospitable thing, it seemed to her, but then she was following her instructions. She stood, steeped in reverie a while, and then she said, "'I think I could always enjoy icebergs, as scenery but not as company.' Still she knew these two people by reputation, and was aware that they were not icebergs when they were in their own waters and amid their legitimate surroundings, but on the contrary were people to be respected for their stainless characters and esteemed for their social virtues and their benevolent impulses. She thought it a pity that they had to be such changed and dreary creatures on occasions of state. The first call Laura received from the other extremity of the Washington aristocracy followed close upon the heels of the one we have just been describing. The callers this time were the Honorable Mrs. Oliver Higgins, the Honorable Mrs. Patrick O'Reilly, pronounced O'Reilly, Miss Bridget, pronounced Briget, O'Reilly, Mrs. Peter Gashley, Miss Gashley, and Miss Emmeline Gashley. The three carriages arrived at the same moment from different directions. They were new and wonderfully shiny, and the brasses on the harness were highly polished and bore complicated monograms. There were showy coats of arms, too, with Latin mottoes. The coachmen and footmen were clad in bright new livery of striking colors, and they had black rosettes with shaving-brushes projecting above them on the sides of their stove-pipe hats. When the visitors swept into the drawing-room, they filled the place with a suffocating sweetness procured at the perfumers. Their costumes, as to architecture, were the latest fashion intensified. They were rainbow-hued. They were hung with jewels, chiefly diamonds. It would have been plain to any eye that it had cost something to upholster these women. The Honorable Mrs. Oliver Higgins was the wife of a delegate from a distant territory, a gentleman who had kept the principal saloon, and sold the best whiskey in the principal village in his wilderness, and so, of course, was recognized as the first man of his commonwealth and its fittest representative. He was a man of paramount influence at home, for he was public-spirited, he was chief of the fire department, he had an admirable command of profane language, and had killed several parties. His shirt-fronts were always immaculate, his boots daintily polished, and no man could lift a foot and fire a dead shot at a stray speck of dirt on it with a white handkerchief with a finer grace than he. His watch-chain weighed a pound, 
the gold in his finger-ring was worth forty-five dollars he wore a diamond cluster-pin and he parted his hair behind he had always been regarded as the most elegant gentleman in his territory and it was conceded by all that no man thereabouts was anywhere near his equal in the telling of an obscene story except the venerable white-haired governor himself the hon higgins had not come to serve his country in washington for nothing the appropriation which he had engineered through congress for the maintenance of the indians in his territory would have made all those savages rich if it had ever got to them the hon mrs higgins was a picturesque woman and a fluent talker and she held a tolerably high station among the parvenus her english was fair enough as a general thing though being of new york origin she had the fashion peculiar to many natives of that city of pronouncing saw and law as if they were spelt sore and lore petroleum was the agent that had suddenly transformed the gashleys from modest hard-working country village folk into loud aristocrats and ornaments of the city the hon patrique orelay was a wealthy frenchman from cork not that he was wealthy when he first came from cork but just the reverse when he first landed in new york with his wife he had only halted at castle garden for a few minutes to receive and exhibit papers showing that he had resided in this country two years and then he voted the democratic ticket and went up town to hunt a house he found one and then went to work as assistant to an architect and builder carrying a hod all day and studying politics evenings industry and economy soon enabled him to start a low rum shop in a foul locality and this gave him political influence in our country it is always our first care to see that our people have the opportunity of voting for their choice of men to represent and govern them we do not permit our great officials to appoint the little officials we prefer to have so tremendous a power as that in our own hands we hold it safest to elect our judges and everybody else in our cities the ward meetings elect delegates to the nominating conventions and instruct them whom to nominate the publicans and their retainers rule the ward meetings for everybody else hates the worry of politics and stays at home the delegates from the ward meetings organize as a nominating convention and make up a list of candidates one convention offering a democratic and another a republican list of incorruptibles and then the great meek public come forward at the proper time and make unhampered choice and bless heaven that they live in a free land where no form of despotism can ever intrude patrick o'reilly as his name then stood created friends and influence very fast for he was always on hand at the police courts to give straw bail for his customers or establish an alibi for them in case they had been beating anybody to death on his premises consequently he presently became a political leader and was elected to a petty office under the city government out of a meagre salary he soon saved money enough to open quite a stylish liquor saloon higher up town with a faro bank attached and plenty of capital to conduct it with this gave him fame and great respectability the position of alderman was forced upon him and it was just the same as presenting him a gold mine he had fine horses and carriages now and closed up his whiskey-mill by and by he became a large contractor for city work and was a bosom friend of the great and good william m weed himself who had stolen twenty million six hundred thousand dollars from the city and was a man so envied so honored so adored indeed 
that when the sheriff went to his office to arrest him as a felon, that sheriff blushed and apologized, and one of the illustrated papers made a picture of the scene, and spoke of the matter in such a way as to show that the editor regretted that the offense of an arrest had been offered to so exalted a personage as Mr. Weed. Mr. O'Reilly furnished shingle-nails to the new courthouse, at three thousand dollars a keg, and eighteen gross of sixty-cent thermometers at fifteen hundred dollars a dozen. The controller and the board of audit passed the bills, and a mayor, who was simply ignorant but not criminal, signed them. When they were paid, Mr. O'Reilly's admirers gave him a solitaire diamond pin of the size of a filbert, in imitation of the liberality of Mr. Weed's friends and then Mr. O'Reilly retired from active service, and amused himself with buying real estate at enormous figures, and holding it in other people's names. By and by the newspapers came out with exposures, and called Weed and O'Reilly thieves, whereupon the people rose as one man, voting repeatedly, and elected the two gentlemen to their proper theater of action, the New York Legislature. The newspapers clamored, and the courts proceeded to try the new legislators for their small irregularities. Our admirable jury system enabled the persecuted ex-officials to secure a jury of nine gentlemen from a neighboring asylum, and three graduates from Sing Sing, and presently they walked forth with characters vindicated. The legislature was called upon to spew them forth, a thing which the legislature declined to do. It was like asking children to repudiate their own father. It was a legislature of the modern pattern. Being now wealthy and distinguished, Mr. O'Reilly, still bearing the legislative honorable attached to his name, for titles never die in America, although we do take a Republican pride in poking fun at such trifles, sailed for Europe with his family. They traveled all about, turning their noses up at everything, and not finding it a difficult thing to do, either because nature had originally given those features a cast in that direction, and finally they established themselves in Paris, that paradise of Americans of their sort. They stayed there two years and learned to speak English with a foreign accent, not that it hadn't always had a foreign accent, which was indeed the case, but now the nature of it was changed. Finally they returned home and became ultra-fashionables. They landed here as the Honorable Patrick Aurelay and family, and so are known unto this day. Laura provided seats for her visitors, and they immediately launched forth into a breezy, sparkling conversation with that easy confidence which is to be found only among persons accustomed to high life. "'I've been intending to call sooner, Miss Hawkins,' said the Honorable Mrs. Aurelay. "'But the weather's been so horrid. How do you like Washington?' Laura liked it very well indeed. Mrs. Gashley, "'Is it your first visit?' "'Yes, it was her first. "'All.' "'Indeed?' "'Mrs. Orlay, "'I'm afraid you'll despise the weather, Miss Hawkins. "'It's perfectly awful. "'It always is. "'I tell Mr. Orlay I can't and I won't put up with any such a climate. "'If we were obliged to do it, I wouldn't mind. "'But we are not obliged to, and so I don't see the use of it. "'Sometimes it's real pitiful the way the children pine for paris don't look so sad brigitte ma chère poor child she can't hear paris mentioned without getting the blues mrs gashley well i should think so mrs orlay a body lives in paris but a body only stays here i dote on paris 
i'd druther scrimp along on ten thousand dollars a year there than suffer and worry here on a real decent income miss gashley well then i wish you'd take us back mother i'm sure i hate this stupid country enough even if it is our dear native land miss emmeline gashley what and leave poor johnny peterson behind an airy genial laugh applauded this sally miss gashley sister i should think you'd be ashamed of yourself miss emmeline oh you needn't ruffle your feathers so i was only joking he don't mean anything by coming to the house every evening only comes to see mother of course that's all general laughter miss g prettily confused emmeline how can you mrs g let your sister alone emmeline i never saw such a tease mrs overlay what lovely corrals you have miss hawkins just look at them bridget dear i've a great passion for corrals it's a pity they're getting a little common i have some elegant ones not as elegant as yours though but of course i don't wear them now laura i suppose they are rather common but still i have a great affection for these because they were given to me by a dear old friend of our family named murphy he was a very charming man but very eccentric he always supposed he was an irishman but after he got rich he went abroad for a year or two and when he came back you would have been amused to see how interested he was in a potato he asked what it was now you know that when providence shapes a mouth especially for the accommodation of a potato you can detect that fact at a glance when that mouth is in repose foreign travel can never remove that sign but he was a very delightful gentleman and his little foible did not hurt him at all we all have our shams i suppose there is a sham somewhere about every individual if we could manage to ferret it out i would so like to go to france i suppose our society here compares very favorably with french society does it not mrs overlay mrs o not by any means miss hawkins french society is much more elegant much more so laura i am sorry to hear that i suppose ours has deteriorated of late mrs o very much indeed there are people in society here that have really no more money to live on than what some of us pay for servant hire still i won't say but what some of them are very good people and respectable too laura the old families seem to be holding themselves aloof from what i hear i suppose you seldom meet in society now the people you used to be familiar with twelve or fifteen years ago mrs o oh no hardly ever mr o'reilly kept his first rum-mill and protected his customers from the law in those days and this turn of the conversation was rather uncomfortable to madame than otherwise hon mrs higgins is francois's health good now mrs Orlais? mrs o thankful for the intervention not very a body couldn't expect it he was always delicate especially his lungs and this odious climate tells on him strong now after paris which is so mild mrs h i should think so husband says percy'll die if he don't have a change and so i'm going to swap round a little and see what can be done i saw a lady from florida last week and she recommended key west i told her percy couldn't abide winds as he was threatened with a pulmonary affection and then she said try st augustine it's an awful distance ten or twelve hundred mile they say 
but then in a case of this kind a body can't stand back for trouble you know mrs o no of course that's off if francois don't get better soon we've got to look out for some other place or else europe we've thought some of the hot springs but i don't know it's a great responsibility and a body wants to go cautious is hildebrand about again mrs gashley mrs g yes but that's about all it was indigestion you know and it looks as if it was chronic and you know i do dread dyspepsia we've all been worried a good deal about him the doctor recommended baked apple and spoiled meat and i think it done him good it's about the only thing that will stay on his stomach nowadays we have dr shovel now who's your doctor mrs higgins mrs h well we had dr spooner a good while but he runs so much to emetics which i think are weakening that we changed off and took dr leathers we like him very much he has a fine european reputation too the first thing he suggested for percy was to have him taken out in the back yard for an airing every afternoon with nothing at all on mrs o and mrs g what mrs h as true as i'm sitting here and it actually helped him for two or three days it did indeed but after that the doctor said it seemed to be too severe and so he has fell back on hot foot-baths at night and cold showers in the morning but i don't think there can be any good sound help for him in such a climate as this i believe we are going to lose him if we don't make a change mrs o i suppose you heard of the fright we had two weeks ago last saturday no why that is strange but come to remember you've all been away to richmond francois tumbled from the skylight in the second-story hall clean down to the first floor everybody mercy mrs o oh yes indeed and broke two of his ribs everybody what mrs o just as true as you live first we thought he must be injured internally it was fifteen minutes past eight in the evening of course we were all distracted in a moment everybody was flying everywhere and nobody doing anything worth anything by and by i flung out next door and dragged in dr sprague president of the medical university no time to go for our own doctor of course and the minute he saw francois he said send for your own physician madam said it as cross as a bear too and turned right on his heel and cleared out without doing a thing everybody the mean contemptible brute mrs o well you may say it i was nearly out of my wits by this time but we hurried off the servants after our own doctor and telegraphed mother she was in new york and rushed down on the first train and when the doctor got there lo and behold you he found francois had broke one of his legs too everybody goodness mrs o yes so he set his leg and bandaged it up and fixed his ribs and gave him a dose of something to quiet down his excitement and put him to sleep poor thing he was trembling and frightened to death and it was pitiful to see him we had him in my bed mr overlay slept in the guest-room and i laid down beside francois but not to sleep bless you no bridget and i sat up all night and the doctor stayed till two in the morning bless his old heart when mother got there she was so used up with anxiety that she had to go to bed and have the doctor and when she found that francois was not in immediate danger she rallied and by night she was able to take a watch herself well for three days and nights we three never left that bedside only to take an hour's nap at a time and then the doctor said francois was out of danger and if ever there was a thankful set in this world it was us 
Laura's respect for these women had augmented during this conversation, naturally enough. Affection and devotion are qualities that are able to adorn and render beautiful a character that is otherwise unattractive and even repulsive. Mrs. Gashley, I do believe I should have died if I had been in your place, Mrs. Orelay. The time Hildebrand was so low with the pneumonia, Emmeline and me were all alone with him most of the time, and we never took a minute's sleep for as much as two days and nights. It was at Newport, and we wouldn't trust hired nurses. One afternoon he had a fit, and jumped up and ran out of the portico of the hotel with nothing in the world on, and the wind a-blowing like ice, and we after him scared to death. And when the ladies and gentlemen saw that he had a fit, every lady scattered for her room, and not a gentleman lifted his hand to help. The wretches! Well, after that his life hung by a thread for as much as ten days, and the minute he was out of danger, Emmeline and me just went to bed sick and worn out. I never want to pass through such a time again. Poor dear Francois! Which leg did he break, Mrs. Orelay? Mrs. O. It was his right-hand hind leg. Jump down, Francois, dear, and show the ladies what a cruel limp you've got yet. Francois demurred, but being coaxed and delivered gently upon the floor, he performed very satisfactorily, with his right-hand hind leg in the air. All were affected, even Laura, but hers was an affection of the stomach. The country-bred girl had not suspected that the little whining ten-ounce black-and-tan reptile, clad in a red-embroidered pygmy-blanket and reposing in Mrs. Overlay's lap all through the visit, was the individual whose sufferings had been stirring the dormant generosities of her nature. She said, "'Poor little creature! You might have lost him!' Mrs. O. "'Oh, pray, don't mention it, Miss Hawkins! It gives me such a turn!' Laura and hildebrand and percy are they are they like this one mrs g no hilly has considerable sky blood in him i believe mrs h percy's the same only he is two months and ten days older and has his ears cropped his father martin farquhar tupper was sickly and died young but he was the sweetest disposition his mother had heart disease but was very gentle and resigned and a wonderful ratter as impossible and exasperating as this conversation may sound to a person who is not an idiot, it is scarcely in any respect an exaggeration of one which one of us actually listened to in an American drawing-room. Otherwise we could not venture to put such a chapter into a book which professes to deal with social possibilities. The Authors So carried away had the visitors become by their interest attaching to this discussion of family matters, that their stay had been prolonged to a very improper and unfashionable length, but they suddenly recollected themselves now, and took their departure. Laura's scorn was boundless. The more she thought of these people and their extraordinary talk, the more offensive they seemed to her. And yet she confessed that if one must choose between the two extreme aristocracies, it might be best, on the whole, looking at things from a strictly business point of view, to herd with the parvenu. She was in Washington solely to compass a certain matter, and to do it at any cost, and these people might be useful to her, while it was plain that her purposes and her schemes for pushing them would not find favor in the eyes of the antiques. If it came to choice, and it might come to that sooner or later, she believed she could come to a decision without much difficulty or many pangs. 
but the best aristocracy of the three washington castes and really the most powerful by far was that of the middle ground it was made up of the families of public men from nearly every state in the union men who held positions in both the executive and legislative branches of the government and whose characters had been for years blemishless both at home and at the capital these gentlemen and their households were unostentatious people they were educated and refined they troubled themselves but little about the two other orders of nobility but moved serenely in their wide orbit confident in their own strength and well aware of the potency of their influence they had no troublesome appearances to keep up no rivalries which they cared to distress themselves about no jealousies to fret over they could afford to mind their own affairs and leave other combinations to do the same or do otherwise just as they chose they were people who were beyond reproach and that was sufficient senator dilworthy never came into collision with any of these factions he labored for them all and with them all he said that all men were brethren and all were entitled to the honest unselfish help and countenance of a christian laborer in the public vineyard laura concluded after reflection to let circumstances determine the course it might be best for her to pursue as regarded the several aristocracies now it might occur to the reader that perhaps laura had been somewhat rudely suggestive in her remarks to mrs overlay when the subject of corals was under discussion but it did not occur to laura herself she was not a person of exaggerated refinement indeed the society and the influences that had formed her character had not been of a nature calculated to make her so she thought that give and take was fair play and that to parry an offensive thrust with a sarcasm was a neat and legitimate thing to do she sometimes talked to people in a way which some ladies would consider actually shocking but laura rather prided herself upon some of her exploits of that character we are sorry we cannot make her a faultless heroine but we cannot for the reason that she was human she considered herself a superior conversationist long ago when the possibility had first been brought before her mind that some day she might move in washington society she had recognized the fact that practiced conversational powers would be a necessary weapon in that field she had also recognized the fact that since her dealings there must be mainly with men and men whom she supposed to be exceptionally cultivated and able she would need heavier shot in her magazine than mere brilliant society nothings whereupon she had at once entered upon a tireless and elaborate course of reading and had never since ceased to devote every unoccupied moment to this sort of preparation having now acquired a happy smattering of various information she used it with good effect she passed for a singularly well-informed woman in washington the quality of her literary tastes had necessarily undergone constant improvement under this regimen and as necessarily also the duality of her language had improved though it cannot be denied that now and then her former condition of life betrayed itself in just perceptible inelegancies of expression and lapses of grammar End of chapter thirty three